Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, this is Anna Dolice on New Books in Human Rights. As you know, every week we pick a book on human rights and host a discussion with its author. Today our guest is Jonathan Weiler with his book, Human Rights in Russia, A Darker Side of Reform. This book reminded me of a new and a very interesting documentary, My Perestroika by Robin Hessman. The documentary depicts the lives of five individuals who were born in the Soviet Union. But they experienced extraordinary events as they grew up after the breakup of the Soviet Union. As kids, they grew up under the dreams about building communism and Cold War propaganda, but in a very materially secure and sheltered childhood. As they grew up, they moved to the scarcity and poverty concomitant with economic policies of shock therapy. They also experienced excitement with the access to the Western culture, as well as turmoil brought by unstable politics. They represent the last generation of the Soviet Union, and they encounter serious difficulties in finding their own place in the current Moscow. Because current Russia is very different from anything they have ever experienced. One of the most serious differences is in the decline in social economic rights, including in the rights uh, in access to health care, food, or housing. While Russia is often touted for its rapid growth in gross domestic product, it remains as one of the countries with the highest rate of inequality. In the U.S. media, Russia is often criticized for human rights violations. The latest series of politically motivated killings, including the murder of prominent human rights defender Natalia Estemirova, has fueled Russia's condemnation by international human rights organizations. Jonathan Weiler's book, Human Rights in Russia, goes beyond the superficial discussion of Russia's human rights record. It looks behind those famous and individual cases, which usually receive most media and public attention, and examines larger and more persistent problems, such as the rights of prisoners, military conscripts, the rights of women and children. The book takes a closer look at the systematic human rights violations and, most importantly, situates them in the historic context in the social economic climate that unfolded in Russia since its independence in the 90s. Through very carefully selected and analyzed case studies, Jonathan Weiler's book reminds us that there's a huge difference in three terms, market, economy, or capitalism, democracy, and human rights. While in public and political discourse, these three terms are often intertwined, it takes a scholar with very well-documented research to remind us that these three concepts are very different and one of them does not necessarily lead to the other. So uh, before we go into the contents of the book, I just wanted to ask you um, about your background and specifically how did you arrive at this topic? Uh-huh. Uh, yes, I think this, you discuss this in the book in the section which you call like, Why Russia? So, But before you go there, why did you start writing? Why did you arrive at this topic? So I'll, I'll start with a tiny bit of personal background, um, which is that uh, – I'm Jewish. Uh, my ancestors come from the came from the Russian Empire. Uh, they, they left before the revolution. Um, my mother's parents were actually um, lifelong communists. Um, so there was always a lot of sort of interest in the Soviet Union, discussion of Soviet communism, and from a somewhat different perspective than I think would happen in the typical American household. Um, And I um, actually arrived in graduate school in the fall of 1989, of course, the year that the Berlin Wall fell and communism in Eastern Europe uh, ended um, and reform was well underway in the Soviet Union. So I became interested in studying for personal reasons and matters of timing uh, Russia uh, for my graduate work. Uh, And I went to Russia, I lived there for 10 months, 95, 96, doing my dissertation research. 
And when I got there, I wasn't actually planning to write specifically about human rights. Um, but when I got there, I just started talking to a lot of people, um, Russian activists, uh, people involved in NGOs, folks of that sort, who all sort of told me the same story, which is, you know, we have this uh, emerging, though problematic, democracy here in Russia, um, but the human rights picture is actually in many ways getting worse. And it's getting worse in ways that people in the West aren't really thinking about anymore, because with the Soviet Union no longer there, uh, nobody really cared about whether prisoners were being abused, for example. Uh, so the West would focus on political prisoners like Sakharov uh, during the Soviet era. But in the post-Soviet era, if a 16-year-old stole a loaf of bread and ended up in jail in tortuous conditions for three years, nobody really gave that a second thought. Um, so I became interested in uh, human rights in Russia partly because I thought it ran contrary to what was happening in democratization studies and political science, which was a burgeoning field in the 80s and 90s, uh, and really sort of took for granted that, well, if countries democratized, of course certain things, like their human rights records, would get better. Um, and what I found in Russia instead was, rather than its human rights record getting better, the profile of its human rights violations was just undergoing this massive transformation. Uh, from a focus on sort of political repression to one in which the, social, the socially disadvantaged uh, were especially vulnerable to uh, human rights abuses. So, uh, so I guess that, that, that's sort of the, the background of why I became interested in this topic. Mm -hmm. And when was this study conducted specifically? Because you, so you said you arrived in Russia in 95, 96, and the book came out in 2004, as I understand. Correct. But when did you do your uh, research? So the, the heart of the research uh, was in 95, 96. That's when, as I said, I, I, I lived there from uh, September 95 until July 96. So I was able, incidentally, which is something to discuss later, uh, to witness the very consequential 1996 presidential elections between Yeltsin and, uh, and the communist Gennady Zuganov. Um, and I continued to do research uh, on the topic. I defended my dissertation uh, in 1999. And then I actually went back to Russia in 2002 for a couple of weeks to do follow-up interviews, um, more research. And so the book, uh, which came out in 2004, I would say is pretty up-to-date through 2003. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And, and definitely later on, I would, I would like to ask you on your views about what's going to happen in Russia. How, how does your research inform you on how things have developed ever since, especially that the elections are coming up pretty mm -hmm. soon there and everyone's thinking about that. But so, so you mentioned um, the relationship between uh, democracy and reform and capitalism and how, these, how the relationship was taken granted in scholarship here. So I wanted you to elaborate on three things that you talk about in the book, human rights, democratization, and capitalist reform, and reform for the sake of establishing capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I said a couple of minutes ago, I felt like when I started really digging into this uh, research and the writing in the late 90s, that there was this hole in democratization studies and political science, which was so focused on these waves of democracy, especially what was called the third wave of democracy, which is said to have started with Portugal and then Spain in the mid-1970s and spread throughout Latin America in the 1980s, um, and then, of course, extended to, and also uh, parts of Asia in the 1980s, and then, of course, extended, uh, most surprisingly, I think, in many people's minds, to communist Eastern Europe and the, and the Soviet Union, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. And, I, and I, as I said, I think that there was a, such a strong presumption that uh, whatever else was going to be a challenge during these transition periods, and everybody assumed that economic reform, uh, while necessary, would be a great challenge. Uh, but whatever else would be challenging about the process of democratization, the transition to democracy, it was, I would say, a, a virtual given 
that of course human rights will improve in these countries, especially uh, in the Soviet Union slash Russia, uh, once it transitioned away from single-party communist dictatorship. And now there were understandable reasons for thinking that, given what a pervasive abuser of human rights um, the Soviet Union was. Uh, but I do think that it led people to, led scholars and observers and politicians and everybody who would comment in any public way on that part of the world, it just led them to assume that they didn't even really need to study human rights in post-Soviet Russia, that they had other concerns to focus on. And that, of course, if there was one area that we could take for granted would be better, uh, it would be, broadly speaking, in the, in the realm in the realm of human rights. So, so I think that that was, as I said, just a, an enormous hole, in my view, in democratization studies. And Anna, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, because I think that this phenomenon is not um, limited at all to Russia and the former Soviet bloc. So mm. sometime in 95 or 96, I remember President Clinton making a comment about the Western Hemisphere and saying that Cuba... Uh, was now the only non-democracy in the Western Hemisphere, okay? Mm -hmm. Which in the terms that um, democracy normally gets defined, competitive elections, a relatively free press, uh, obviously multiple parties, et cetera, was, was, it, he wasn't wrong to say that. But what I found so striking about that is that comment is not just meant as a sort of descriptive comment about the regime type. It, it's meant as the most fundamental kind of moral judgment that one can make. And in a nutshell, that moral judgment is that all the countries in the Western Hemisphere are in the category of good regimes, mm -hmm. and Cuba alone is in the category of countries in what we could say are bad regimes. And what's especially striking about that is if you know anything about Latin America, for example, the mid-1990s, you know that a horrendously violent war was going on in Peru, for example, and that the regime was killing thousands of people. Um, mm -hmm. And conditions in places like Guatemala, to take another example, were in many ways, from the point of view of the most basic sense of personal security of individual citizens, far worse than was the case in Cuba. And so it just seemed to me that if we're actually going to have a conversation about human rights, uh, we need to really step back from uh, these very constrained boxes into which we're classifying countries and ask ourselves why we care about democracy and why we care about human rights. And Fareed Zakaria, I think, in his article, which later became a book, uh, Illiberal Democracy, captured well this sort of analytical problem which is that, um, you know, we care about democracy, Zakaria said, because what we really care about is the liberal part of liberal democracy. We care about protection of individual rights. We care about constitutionalism. We care about power being accountable to the people. Those are the things that we care about more than whether two candidates run in an election that even if it's rigged is at least competitive. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's really kind of a, a misdiagnosis of why democracy matters that's inherent, that I think was inherent in democratization studies. And so in a way, my study about Russia was an attempt to uh, sort of portray, I think, one very vivid illustration of, I think, this kind of analytical and normative problem. Very interesting. And related to that, to that, I find your discussion of the concept of human rights violations very interesting. And in terms of what is usually presumed when, when people talk about human rights and what is usually missing from the picture, I wonder if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning of the book in particular that there's been a debate about, there's been many debates, of course, about human rights over the years, but one of the central debates, and I think this was especially central during the Cold War, um, was over what were often referred to as first-generation rights versus second-generation rights. And first-generation rights are sort of the classical liberal rights, civil rights, uh, rights to freedom of assembly and expression, um, basic rights associated with political citizenship. And second-generation rights, which have to do uh, with social and economic rights, um, also enshrined, by the way, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 
um, focused on things like social security, pensions, health, and that sort of thing. And it was commonly asserted during the Cold War in particular that the Soviet bloc wanted to argue, and this is true, the Soviet bloc wanted to argue our human rights record is not worse than yours. We just emphasize different sorts of rights, namely second generation and socioeconomic rights versus first generation political and civil rights. And what I wanted to say was I don't want to get into that debate about first versus second generation rights. Uh, I want to focus on a set of rights that I think are so basic and elemental that nobody could really argue whether it's valid to talk about those as human rights, and that's the category of what I call personal inviolability or personal security uh, or rights to personal physical integrity, you know, something like that. So that when individuals are in the most basic way insecure in their persons, um, which I think going back 300 years, liberal thought would say is the number one requirement of government, to make sure that people are secure in their individual persons, uh, that that was the definition of human rights and the category of violations that I wanted to focus on. And again, what was so striking to me was how pervasively insecure people were physically in post-Soviet Russia, even by comparison with the Soviet Union. And at no point do I say that the Soviet Union was the Garden of Eden of, uh, you know, personal mm-hmm. security rights. It was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really a, it's a condemnation of what happened under a democratic transition more than it is my work, that is, more than it is any effort uh, to kind of rationalize uh, or argue that things weren't so bad in the Soviet Union. And and, before, and I, I find your book extremely interesting and rich in the case studies that you offer, and I hope we can discuss them in depth later. Uh-huh. But before that, for those um, of, uh, of, of the listeners who are not that familiar with Russia or the political tr- history or of the history of the transition from the 90s, I wonder if you could guide us through that, especially because it's so very well laid out in the book. Yeah, so um, the... You know, in a nutshell, uh, of course, I think most people know that Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985. Um, and without going into all the details, within a couple of years, by 1987 or so, clearly had greater ambitions for reforming the Soviet system than anybody, I think, anticipated he would when he, when he first took office. Um, And he often uh, used this term, and forgive my poor uh, Russian accent, but he used this term, pravovoya gasudarstva, law-based state, Mm -hmm. to articulate the aspiration that he had for the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union would become a state based under law and not based on the whims of a dictator or single-party rule. So Gorbachev began this very, what became an increasingly far-reaching reform process uh, in the late 1980s that included introducing for the first time competitive elections, uh, not at first multi-party elections, but competitive elections for a new legislature, a really new set of legislatures that he created in the late 1980s that would actually have voice. Uh, He, he of course, probably most famously Uh, instituted a a broader process of what was called glasnost or openness or more literally voice uh, to allow Soviet citizens to come forward and not only criticize leaders currently, but in some ways even more profoundly to really allow them to unearth the horrendous record of uh, abuse and terror and murder that had existed under Stalin specifically and then under the Communist Party more generally. And then in 1990, uh, the Soviet Union revoked uh, Article 6 of its constitution, which had made the the Communist Party the only legal party in the Soviet Union. Uh, And by this point, the other republics that were constituent members of the Soviet Union increasingly started to agitate for autonomy and then independence. Uh, And then in 1991, Um, There was an attempted coup in August of 1991 to sort of stop this increasingly, uh, from their point of view, the 
the coup plotter's point of view, out of control reform process. Uh, the coup failed. Uh, that resulted in Boris Yeltsin's hand. Boris Yeltsin had become the president of Russia, which was still part of the Soviet Union, and therefore he was hierarchically under Gorbachev. Uh, that only strengthened Yeltsin's hand. Uh, and then by the end of uh, the year 1991, the Soviet Union uh, had ceased to exist, uh, and Russia, as well as the other former Soviet republics, emerged as independent states in international and in international law. Is that, is that the kind of summary you were looking for? Absolutely. And if we can move on to the time period, which I remember being from the Republic of Georgia, I remember yes. very vividly, and that is the shock doctrine and so-called reforms that yes. you also talk about and the results that they brought about. I wonder if you could elaborate on those. Yeah, so I do think in a, you know, in a, a, a central part of the story that I tried to tell uh, are the economic reforms that were instituted you know, specifically in Russia beginning at the beginning of 1992 when Russia first emerged as an independent state. Actually, the reforms had begun uh, before then, but I, I won't get into that whole story. But they were sort of launched uh, – in a, in a more full-throated way at the beginning of 1992. People often referred to them as uh, collectively as shock therapy economic reforms. And the idea was to dismantle the centrally planned Soviet uh, economic structure as rapidly as possible and move as quickly as possible to a market economy. And there were many justifications for doing this, some specific to the Soviet economic experience and others more generally related to uh, strongly held ideological beliefs about what the best economic system is and what it should look like and how closely it should mirror uh, specifically the American economy or at least a fantasy version of the American economy. Um, and so those reforms were launched in the beginning of 1992. And, and from the perspective of my book and my argument What's most important, I think, about that, and this was articulated very well by Stephen Holmes, who's a scholar at NYU. I uh, wrote an article in 1997. I can't remember the title of it now, but it's about um, how we all assumed, based on Soviet history and the Soviet legacy, that the biggest threat to freedom is the threat of a state that's too large and too intrusive. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is, you know, this is basic libertarian doctrine uh, mm -hmm. to this day. And of course, it doesn't matter how low our taxes go in the United States, et cetera. For libertarians, it's government's always oppressive, no matter what it does. But um, forgive that editorial for a moment. <laughs> so, so Stephen Holmes wrote this very compelling article in 1997 in which he said, look, we, we've always assumed and not unreasonably that the state is the greatest threat to human freedom. That was certainly the case in the Soviet Union. And so in a kind of simplistic way, we can say, well, if a big state is bad, the smaller the state, the better. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the central uh, foci of the shock therapy economic reforms that we needed to get government and the state out of the economy as quickly uh, and completely as possible. And this meant, among other things, that, that Russia would carry out a very dramatic mass privatization of its businesses and of its, uh, you know, most precious natural resources, oil and gas, nickel, et cetera. Um, and so the idea is that the smaller the state, the better. And what Holmes argued in 1997, which is very much consistent um, with what I wrote, is that, well, it turns out that, that when a state is weakened beyond a certain point, that's not good for human freedom. That's actually really bad for human freedom. Um, and it's really bad for human freedom for a number of reasons. One reason it's really bad for human freedom is that we actually need a state to enforce laws and protect citizens. And if the state is too weak to do that, well, then we end up with a kind of state of nature, a tremendous level of violence, an inability to bring to justice uh, people who are perpetrating much of that violence, especially if they have resources and the ability, private resources and the ability to buy off police and courts, for example. And mm -hmm. so the decline of the state, which was, which was an intention 
of neoliberal economic reform, a shock therapy economic reform, although maybe not a decline in the way that the reformers meant it. There's a debate about that. The decline of the state was one of the key factors driving the kinds of human rights violations that I describe in the book. The, the most clear and straightforward of those uh, is what happened in the prison system. So yeah. these economic reforms, which did cause economic chaos, threw tons of Russians into poverty, um, and made life just much more difficult for them on a day-to-day basis in the 90s, contributed significantly to an explosion in crime. The response to the explosion in crime was very harsh law enforcement, uh, uh, law enforcement uh, attitudes, uh, a kind of lock them up first and ask questions later approach. So the prison system was swelling in Russia in the mid-1990s at the time that Budgets are being cut dramatically because of the declining economy and shock therapy economic reform. And so what you have in the prisons by, the, by 1994 was what a UN investigator caused, called widespread tortuous conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, people living in cells, uh, you know, in some cases, 140 people in cells meant to hold 35 people overcrowding on the order of 300 or 400 percent, rampant tuberculosis, uh, disease, uh, torture, physical abuse, much of which stemmed from, as I said, the kind of declining state capacity in the face of uh, this real economic and social upheaval that was taking place in the 1990s. So, So a diminishing state capacity, it turns out, beyond a certain point, undermines human rights rather than protecting human freedom. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting argument. also resonates to some of the debates about Asia and the Asian development, development model. But uh, as you yes. mentioned, you're one of your um, case studies already. I found, so you have approximately, I think, six separate case studies on what you call vulnerable groups. Yes. So you would correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but so you talk about prisoners, children, situation of women, uh, conscripts, um, the dark-skinned individuals, uh, primarily from South Caucasus. Yes. And uh, so I was wondering, uh, first of all, before we move uh, it into discussing this substantively, how did you arrive at selecting this these groups, which you think kind of reflect this, the human rights situation in Russia? Yeah, well, Anna, I wish I could uh, say that those groups were chosen on the basic of some, you know, rigorous social science criteria, uh, but I would be lying if I said that. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways it was, this goes back to the conversations I started having when I first got to Russia and finding, at least to my surprise, this is in 1995, uh, this sort of, what at the time seemed to me to be a paradox that we have this, you know, troubled, but at least in the 1990s, emerging Uh, and quite contentious democracy in Russia on the one hand, and these pervasive kinds of abuses on the other. Um, And so part of my criteria for selection was just the issues I heard uh, activists uh, and other interested parties talk most about. And prisons was, I would say, certainly number one on the list. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, once I started to dig into this, uh, and there would be, by the way, in the 1990s, you know, articles in major Russian newspapers about prison conditions, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, this was this was the regime wasn't in the 1990s trying to hide any of this. They were kind of throwing up their hands and saying, you know, look, things are a bit chaotic right now and we've got declining resources and there's only there's only so much we can do. I, I did a tour. Uh, I did two tours, actually, of Buterki prison. Mm, um, in wow. Moscow in uh, 1996, and when we first went in there, I was with a. I was actually observing presidential elections in there um, mm. because a lot of the people in the prison were in remand; they had not yet been tried. They mm-hmm. still had their voting rights, and there was actually a polling station in the prison. Mm-hmm. So we went to just observe, make to make sure that the folks in the prison who were voting were not having their voting rights violated, and we had a conversation with uh, the warden, uh, who was very frank about how terrible the conditions were and that he had taken a trip to California to view prison conditions there. 
and could only look with jealousy about how much money American prisons had uh, to mm-hmm. make sure that there were, you know, minimally humane standards. So, so nobody in the 1990s was trying to deny any of this, so which, which in a way added, I felt like, to the power of the story that these massive abuses are really hiding in plain sight. Um, and they're just not the kinds of things that Western journalists, uh, for example, uh, the correspondents in Moscow from papers like the Washington Post and the New York Times were paying any attention to. Um, but so prisoners was one obvious example. I would say women was just another one, just the, the pervasiveness of violence against women, uh, which was exacerbated uh, in all sorts of ways by uh, the economic shock therapy process of the 1990s mm-hmm. and the opening of the borders, uh, which had huge consequences for sex trafficking and women from your part of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and to put it crudely, you know, in the international sex trafficking market, uh, women from that part of the world appear to be, you know, a particularly favored commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so women were sort of, a, I would say, another obvious choice. And then, you know, dark-skinned, uh, I, I just, for lack of a better phrase, unfortunately, dark-skinned residents of Moscow, although this is a problem all over the country, uh, I knew this because I had, I had friends with some. I knew a guy, actually, uh, who worked, uh, who was a Jamaican, who worked at the Jamaican embassy in Moscow, who would get stopped multiple times every day and asked for his papers, Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and he didn't suffer anywhere near the kind of harassment that other people did. So anyway, to, to make a long story short, in all of these cases, just sort of in the course of my research and conversations and networking, et cetera, I came across what I thought were these broad and significant categories of residents in Russia who were suffering, you know, really pervasive abuse, mm-hmm. and again, in ways that... Uh, scholarship in general just wasn't going to pay any attention to, which I felt was not only significant as a human rights issue, but as I said earlier, really in many ways a condemnation of of the way we think about democratization more broadly. Very interesting. And what is is also interesting in your narrative, and which which I I completely resonate with, with from my experience, is how these problems were not in any way related to the reform or the shock, shock therapy in, in scholarship or in sort of public media or public discourse. These two things kind of were understood as, as very different. The reform was going on. It, was, it had this sort of image of progress in it, as you discuss in your book, and uh, the teleology of progress in it. And on the other hand, there were these pervasive problems, which I think do continue to date, and I really want to ask you about what you think about Russia nowadays. But yeah. so, uh, so if we move to your discussion, uh, you you did elaborate a little bit on, on prisons already. But uh, if uh, we move to your uh, discussion of uh, the issue of women and perhaps children and orphanages, because this is an issue which is not very often covered in the Western media, the specific problem of abandoned children in Russia. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, starting um, starting with women, you know, there, there's uh, I mean, in many ways, what happened to women in Russia in 1990s, you know, to, to use a well-worn phrase right now, is sort of a perfect storm. Um, so there is a pre-existing and quite pervasive culture of sexism. I, mean, I know that's sort of broad and sweeping, but um, I, th- I think it's a, a reasonably valid thing to say about I w- that part. I would, yeah, I would totally agree about yeah. that. <laughs> so, um, so there's there's a pre-existing and pervasive culture of sexism, uh, and and by the way, plenty from you know whatever data we can glean about this from the Soviet period, plenty of violence against women, Mm -hmm. uh, all of which is exacerbated by high levels of alcohol consumption. Um, And so there's already, you know, the the starting point for women in Russia at the beginning of the 1990s is already not good, Um, you know, to, to be clear about that. But in every way was really worsened by the circumstances of the 90s themselves. And and I just want to go back and make this point quickly that a lot of people sort of poo-pooed the uh, negative aspects of Russian life in the 1990s, including the human rights stuff, if they addressed it by saying, 
well, that's the Soviet legacy. Mm-hmm. And that certainly was, I would say, a catch-all justification for um, explaining why the economic reforms during the 1990s went as badly as they did. Um, and, and there's no doubt that the Soviet legacy, it would just, I mean, it's almost banal to say that, of course, the legacy mattered. Um, but there is a way in which that became, as I said, I think a sort of catch-all rationalization for things that were not entirely attributable the Soviet legacy, but were in fact uh, byproducts of the reform process itself. And so, you know, on the subject of women, um, the fact that there was already uh, a, 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 a highly problematic starting point for women as they entered the 1990s doesn't change the fact that the reform process itself really made things worse, I would say, in almost every way. Uh, so, you know, unemployment uh, becomes a factor for the first time in post-Soviet Russia. Uh, and women were uh, widely discriminated against in the job market, for example. And that mm-hmm. made them uh, quite desperate to find sources of income, including uh, engaging in sex work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's that fact. There's the fact that under economically stressful circumstances, especially the highly disruptive circumstances uh, that Russia faced in the early 1990s, are going to um, lead to an increase and in some cases a, a tremendous increase in violent circumstances. The murder rate in Russia, you know, doubled or tripled uh, between the mid-1980s and the mid-1990s. And when people think about murder... Uh, they have a particular way of thinking about it, which is, you know, somebody being, you know, robbed on the street and then shot and killed. Mm-hmm. But a large percentage of that increase in murder was women being murdered in their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and by all accounts, there was a tremendous increase in alcohol consumption in Russia in the 1990s, um, which only made which only made the problem worse. So and then, as I said, uh, as I said, a couple of minutes ago, the open borders, which are one of those things that. It'd be really hard for anybody to argue that open borders are a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But those open borders did have a very profound unintended consequence, which was they made the Soviet Union a major focal point for international sex trafficking. So in all sorts of ways, I think the reform process of the 90s and the particular way in which it was carried out in Russia with a real neglect of the social safety net while the economy was undergoing this uh, intense shock had very specific consequences for women, which general treatments of reform almost never account for. Women are just in, largely invisible in that story, mm-hmm. except for sort of specialty scholars who focus on women's issues, or Amnesty International write, might write a report about women's human rights. But in general discourse, uh, that piece of the larger process is as I said, I think largely ignored. Definitely, definitely. So, so, and what about children? Yeah, so, and I have to say, Anna, too, that whereas in the case of prisons and women, I did a lot of research when I was in Russia. I talked to a lot of people when I was there who, you know, activists, government officials who were involved in uh, the legal framework uh, and in uh, social programs dealing with those issues. You know, the children, I I thought was such an important issue that I added it, but it was not something that I really explored much when I was there in 95, 96. Um, But Human Rights Watch, it happens, did a very lengthy report about it uh, in the later 1990s. And that was, you know, that was that was a large basis for for the the part of the chapter that I wrote about children. But I do think that they also sort of fit the analysis I just mentioned a moment ago, which is they are just an invisible, in many contexts, an invisible population when people are evaluating, when scholars and statesmen um, are evaluating the pros and cons of shock therapy economic reform. So, People are under those kinds of economic circumstances. They're giving up their children if they have them. Uh, And once they're giving them up, they're finding their way into state orphanages. And again, state orphanages were, uh, by all accounts, awful in the Soviet period, but then dramatically underfunded 
during the shock therapy process of the 1990s, which exacerbated every problem that already existed. I mean, in a way, very much like the prisons, except that uh, these are not, you know, criminals or criminal suspects we're talking about now. These are small children who are Mm -hmm. in increasing numbers going into these orphanages at the very moment that these orphanages are being underfunded. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, there was an interesting comment by a child a children's activist. Uh, she gave a quote to a newspaper in Russia in the early 90s, you know, about how awful the orphanages were. And she said, you know, if this is democracy, I don't want it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that Americans have a hard time recognizing is that if you look at a survey about attitudes toward democracy in a place like Russia, for example, and you hear that some significant percentage of Russians don't like democracy, we in America, for example, will make certain erroneous assumptions about what they mean by that. We think that they mean that they don't want freedom of assembly or they don't want freedom of the press or those sorts of things, and some Russians don't. Uh, But a lot of them, if they're answering a question like that, what they're really saying is that in our experience, we were told in the 1990s that democracy didn't just mean elections. Democracy meant capitalism and economic reform. Mm -hmm. And if you're telling me that's what democracy is, and that's the baggage that they associate with democracy, then it makes good sense that they would say they don't like democracy. And I dare say that in America... Uh, If people went through, you know, 2000 percent inflation uh, and the wiping out of their life savings to the degree that happened to Russians in the early 1990s, and you were asked a question about democracy after having been told that democracy equals free markets, I don't think that many Americans would say they like democracy either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that reminds me of the of the documentary which recently came out I I uh, I haven't seen it myself but I wonder if you have seen it My Perestroika You know I have not seen it Yes I think I think it would resonate it could pro- it would provide sort of a visual material to your narrative I think because uh-huh. it sort of recounts the story of five individuals who went through peris- perestroika in the period afterwards and how their li- their lives have changed and what disillusionment they've suffered A little bit different part of your book um uh, concerns Chechnya and uh, the two wars conducted in Chechnya. Uh, it, obviously, this is not sort of a study of vulnerable groups as your other studies are, but um, I would uh, really appreciate sir, if you would discuss why you chose the subject. I would understand that it was impo- almost impossible to ignore this topic while at, at the time that you were in Russia. But so, what, would, what was your take? What is your take on the two wars in Chechnya and the rights violations that took place there? Yeah, well, uh, as you said, uh, for, aside from their obvious inherent significance to the story of human rights in post-Soviet Russia. Um, I was especially influenced by uh, Anatole Levin, this uh, scholar at the Carnegie Endowment, uh, who's written a number of books. He wrote one in the late 90s called uh, Chechnya Tombstone of Russian Power. And he argued that um, not only the invasion itself, this is now the first invasion from 94 to 96, but the conduct of the invasion were emblematic of the pathologies facing the Russian state. Uh, during the 1990s as it was affected by neoliberal economic reform. So I did think that Chechnya um, was interesting uh, to speak about uh, from a human rights perspective in, in light of Levin's analysis of larger issues of state failure. Um, and so, I mean, just to take one example, you know, the conditions in the Russian armed forces Uh, were absolutely horrendous in the 1990s, and they remain very poor. Uh, But there's this, you know, what what we translate as hazing, the Russians call the dovshina, Mm -hmm. um, which are these very brutal methods of uh, senior officers and older conscripts and older volunteers sort of imposing their will on younger conscripts. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of violence associated with that process itself, and an organization in Russia, Soldiers' Mothers, uh, which has been a very high-profile critic 
of those abuses, an advocate for reform of the Soviet conscript system, et cetera. But among the consequences of all of that for uh, what happened in Chechnya uh, was that morale in the Russian army was just so awful um, that it was likely to lead to pervasive abuses and war crimes. I mean, even apart from uh, the circumstances that make war awful to begin with. Um, and so I do think that that's an example of the connection between the declining state uh, in the context of reform and democratization in Russia in the 1990s that I talked about uh, and the just the, the degree of awfulness of the conduct of the Russian campaign, or two campaigns, but specifically the first one uh, in Chechnya in the mid-1990s. Interesting. And uh, so, um, so in your conclusion, you I, I, what I what I take what what I understand is you sort of extrapolate from the lessons learned in Russia, in um, in arguing that there are what you, if I may quote, that there are global and structural processes influencing levels of life integrity violations all over the world, not just in Russia. And then you move on in discussing the situation of, of poor in Brazil um, and, and other countries. And I was wondering, so I was wondering here if you could sort of sum up your argument uh, or your or the conclusions that you came up with based on your on your study before we move to discussing how things have developed after the hopeful moment of Putin's election. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, the as I as I said earlier, you know, I I, I did intend this um, not merely as a discussion of human rights in Russia, and and certainly I want to say as clearly as I can, not primarily. Uh, as a desire to pick on Russia for its human rights problems, mm -hmm. um, but really in part to illustrate what I thought and think was a much larger problem with democratization studies and, and the whole way we understand what's normatively good about democracy. And so I do think that the, um, the kinds of pathologies uh, that existed in Russia in the 1990s that led to declining state capacity and things like that were uh, endemic in the democratizing world in many parts of Latin America and certainly in other parts of the former Soviet bloc. Um, and so this desire on the part of local elites uh, egged on, for lack of a better phrase, by global elites, especially in Washington, D.C., uh, that these countries adopt particular models for economic reform based on, as I said, what I think was a fantasy version of what Western economies and the U.S. economy look like. Those economies uh, do rely on, or at least in the past, have relied on significant state support and state intervention and regulation mm -hmm. and enforcement of contract uh, and a social safety net. Um, and preservation of uh, people's life integrity rights and all of those things uh, mm -hmm. to allow for the, the successful functioning of a capitalist economy itself. Um, mm -hmm. And the neglect of all of those necessary uh, government or state elements of a successful economy, I think is really the key factor in explaining why these democratizing or reforming countries experience such widespread poverty, violence, abuse, uh, and just neglect of human rights uh, in the 90s. And so, yes, I think that this problem exists, has existed far and wide outside of Russia. Mm -hmm. and, there, and there's a separate question I wanted to ask you concerning the, this critique um, in in which I think your also your scholarship and book ties, which has been coming from the former Soviet Union and the and the shock and the results which have ensued after the shock doctrine. So, do you, because in the in the domestic discourse which I have witnessed in Georgia, the concept of democracy, capital market economy, um, and human rights they're all meshed together. Yeah. As you as you write, absolutely, Democ they, they mean some something positive. 
something normatively good, but no one, but they're not divided. No one talks about them specifically. And, and, no one talks. And Anna, I just, yes. I just want to say very quickly, you know, mm -hmm. the, the phrase I use, I think a few times in the book is um, it's inelegant, but I think it captures the point that this is sort of the uh, everything good goes together model. Yes, indeed. <laughs> exactly. So do you think, so in line with your critique and other stuff like shock doctrine by Naomi Klein yes. and other, other stuff that is out there, do you think this critique was, has been taken into account, especially among the policymakers in sort of the area of development? I don't know if you would, would want to answer this, but I just wanted to like see your take on this. I, I, I can try. It's, it's an interesting and I think complicated question. I think at the level of um, state leaders, um, you know, let's take the White House just as one example. I don't think that this critique really uh, has influenced their thinking in any meaningful way. And of course, you know, there's a more radical direction, and you mentioned Naomi Klein, to take this in, which is that what Western elites are interested in is making sure that um, transnational capital uh, is as mobile and unfettered as possible. Um, and their their advocacy of particular kinds of economic reform uh, is in pursuit of that goal. And if there are these unintended consequences in terms of the violation of the rights of the socially vulnerable, et cetera, well, that's just if it's on their radar screen, it's certainly it's certainly not a priority. Um, so, I, so I do I do think that there is sort of that um, that larger overlay. I mean, I think in the, you know, Jeffrey Sachs uh, mm -hmm. is a very interesting case here mm -hmm. of a guy who is perhaps the economist, the single economist most closely associated with the phrase shock therapy. Absolutely. Right? And, and he began uh, applying his uh, trade in, I think, Bolivia in the mid-1980s. Uh, and then moved on to Eastern Europe and Russia in the 1990s. I know there's a big controversy about the role he did or didn't play in Poland, for example. Um, but I think Sachs is, you know, it, it, it's a little gimmicky to use one person to symbolize sort of an arc of discourse. But, you know, mm -hmm. Sachs in 2011 has become a quite trenchant critic in some important ways of neoliberal economic reform, uh, and a very fierce and vocal advocate for providing much more funding and support for development, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, but in other places as well, and whose ideas I think are, I, I don't think he actually admits this, because um, mm -hmm. he's had trouble sort of owning up to what he did or didn't do in places like Russia in the early 90s, but I think he's at least in some ways emblematic of a change, at least among that sort of person, Joseph Steiglitz, you know, as the former head of the Council of Economic Advisors under Bill Clinton, Nobel Prize winning economist and mm -hmm. a chief economist at the World Bank. He's become a real critic of neoliberal reform. So, you know, I think among some prominent people, that kind of critique and concern about whether all things really do go together is out there. But I don't mm -hmm. think it's affecting um, I don't think it's really affecting policymaking in any way. That's very interesting. Thank you for that uh, take on this. And so, so there's a part in your book uh, where where I think your book kind of stops or ends, and that is a hopeful moment of uh, electing Mr. Putin at that time, and a hopeful moment perhaps in sort of Western academia and policymaking circles. Um, and so, uh, I, I wonder what would be your take on how the issues that you highlight in your book have have developed, whether they've disappeared or whether they permeate since your book has been out. And this is especially because Russia is expecting presidential elections very soon. Everyone is hopeful or rather sort of maybe skeptical, but everyone is watching. So I was wondering, so how would you, if you, if you had to write another edition of this book today, yeah. like how would you continue that? Well, you know, if, it's interesting, Anna. I, I would say a couple of things. The first thing I would say is I don't think I have. I don't think I would have gone so far as to say that Putin was a hopeful development. I think what mm -hmm. I would have said is that he's for the kinds of issues I'm talking about. He's not going to be nearly as bad as people think he is. Okay. Um, so I I, I I I I think I'd I think I'd rather say it that way. Uh -huh. um, but 
You know, it's interesting because if you talk to people, I was actually sitting in a restaurant in Chapel Hill the other day rereading my book because I haven't read it in a while and I just wanted <laughs> to make sure I remembered what I wrote. But um, so I'm reading the book and the cover says human rights in Russia. And this older guy walks by me. I've never met him before. And he looks at the title as he's walking back past me with his food. And he's like, human rights in Russia. There are no human rights in Russia. <laughs> and this is I've gotten many times, actually. It's an oxymoron. It's an oxymoron, exactly. And, you know, sometimes when I think fast enough, my joke is, well, that's why my book is so small. Um, but, you know, I do think that there is this sort of incorrect vindication on the part of people who accept this all good things go together worldview uh, that what Putin has come to represent, which is, you know, the uh, the elimination of any meaningful opposition, uh, the elimination of any dissent on television. I, I know there's still dissent on radio and certainly online and in some newspapers, but TV has basically been national TV has basically been entirely taken over by the state. Um, you know, there have been high profile arrests of activists, uh, murders of journalists. So in all of these ways, I think this is very consistent with and I dare say comforting to a particular understanding of the relationship between democracy and human rights. And in a way, what frustrates me about that narrative is not any desire on my part to defend Putin's human rights record, but to say that the truth is, in all of the ways that I talk about, there's very little difference between now and 12 years ago when Yeltsin was still in office. You know, mm -hmm. whether, it's whether, whether it's violence against women, um, whether it's prisons. And actually, you know, the prisons are a place where things are still awful. Mm -hmm. but they're actually a little bit better than they were under Yeltsin because Putin, uh, who if, not, if nothing else is a pragmatic guy, actually, uh, and a couple of times early in his tenure, uh, authorized mass amnesties from the Russian prisons because he knew that they were outrageously overcrowded. He knew that there were tons of people in those prisons who, as I said earlier, literally were in jail for multiple years because they stole like three loaves of bread. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas in the 1990s, Russia on a population, on a per capita basis, was the highest incarcerator in the world. Russia no longer is. Now it's only the number two incarcerator, of course, behind the United States. <laughs> so, you know, I actually think in some ways, and again, not because Putin is some great advocate for human rights, but because there's been some effort at um, streamlining the bureaucracy, at strengthening the state and in ways that actually benefit or can benefit people in their life integrity rights. I had a conversation uh, with Tanya Lukshina, who was, uh, I can't remember her exact title, but she was a very significant person in Moscow Helsinki Group, which is one of the major Russian human rights groups. I spoke to her in 2002, um, and she said, you know, look, none of us are thrilled about Putin for all sorts of obvious reasons. But for example, this effort to consolidate the 88 regions, leaving aside Chechnya of the Russian Federation under federal control, that will probably be good in some ways for human rights. Because we have these pretty decent laws on the books, but none of them get enforced. And there's all this corruption uh, in, among the regional leaders that we're hoping that Putin will sort of bring under heel a little bit. And as a side benefit, we might actually see some improvement in some ways in human rights. And I think there's been, again, in the case of the prisons, at least a little bit of that. So I actually think the story of human rights in Russia and as a long-winded way of getting around to answering your question, Anna, if I had to write another chapter, the chapter I would write is that contrary to the everything, every, everything good goes together model, the story of Russian human rights since 1991 is not of rupture, but of continuity. That it's really been largely more of the same under Putin, including murder of journalists, uh, yes. which was a huge problem under Yeltsin. Sure. Um, there, there, there's been some increase, I think, year over year in murder of journalists under, I'm, I'm saying, I realize Putin's not president, but 
we both know who runs the country. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I, so I think mm-hmm. continuity uh, and not rupture, despite the fact that Russia is indisputably less democratic in the sort of competitive political sense that we normally think about it. Russia is indisputably less democratic today than it was in 1996. And yet the human rights story is a story of continuity, not of rupture. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And that ties back to your argument that these are two very different things, democracy, democratization, and, and human rights. Yes. Yes. Excellent, Jonathan. Thank you very much for this very sad but very, very interesting and enlightening conversation. Well, Anna, thank you so much. You have been listening to Anna Dolize on New Books and Human Rights. As you know, every week we pick a book on human rights and have a discussion with its author. Today I had a great pleasure of having a conversation with Jonathan Weiler about his book Human Rights in Russia, A Darker Side of Reform. I hope to again have your attention next week for a conversation with Nala Abdo about her new book, Women in Israel, Race, Gender, and Citizenship. The book just came out from Zed Books Publishing. Have a great week. Thank you.